Um, I'm going to tell you right now that I edited out about 95% of what I wanted to say today. Um, because they're just, I mean, like, I, there's just so much on this issue. Um, a couple months ago, so there will be a podcast on the Engage and Equip podcast called Cutting Room Floor, which will be on this sermon, where I'll go into a bunch of stuff I'm not going to have time for today. Um, about two months ago, <clears throat> I decided that the sermon for this week would be on um, vices that destroy unity. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know, guys. Um, so, when I was, um, uh, this, this fall, there was a couple kids over helping my wife rake leaves from another family. So there were like about five kids total. And they were raking all the leaves in my yard. And they made a big pile. And then they argued a little bit about who's going to jump in the pile first, because that was part of their compensation for helping rake leaves. And my daughter, who's eight, drew the second slot, right? And she was pretty happy with that, because that's second. That's pretty good, right? So the first kid runs up and jumps in the leaves, and they just go, Poof. it's like the most gratifying thing in the world, right? And my daughter gets ready to run. She realizes that this pile is already now like a one-foot-high disc of leaves. And she realized, after they had been raking for about an hour, that this is how it goes. You spend an hour raking the leaves and building the pile, and then you—the first person who jumps in the pile gets basically 85% of the gratification. Um, All my kids, at some point, when they were usually four or five years old, usually, um, they'd say, Daddy, let's make a snow fort with those little bricks, you know, those like really terrible ways to make a snow fort, but it looks nice because you, l- you made little bricks. So usually I would build about this high on two sides, and then what happens, right? The kid's attention span is used up for the fort building, right? And so what do they do? Well, you know, you're, like the dad's like, I'm building this thing. Like, I got more bricks. This is gratifying, right? And the kid's like, I'm done with this. So they dive through the wall and destroy it, right? All four of my kids did this, right? And they're like, annoyed me because I was like, you know, building this thing. And then I'm like, I can't yell at them. They're four for this, you know. Um, but, you know, it's, it's not cute to destroy things because it's fun when you're 14 and 20 and 35 and 42 and 68 and 74 and 78, right? That's not cute at all. And— um, this is a video of the construction of the One World Trade Center, which was the replacement for the Twin Towers that were destroyed in 2001. It took seven years, thousands of people, incredible new feats of engineering, and so on, um, to build the original two towers. It takes 83 days just to build the plane that was flown into the building, which thousands of people work on. It has multiple thousands of years of human intelligence built into it. If you had all the engineers and all they thought up and all the problems they solved, it's thousands and thousands of years of human ingenuity into the most advanced mechanisms of construction and manufacturing of hundreds and hundreds of people just to make something that you can fly through the air in. In a building in which thousands and thousands of people can work in like a postage stamp of city space. And it takes a few minutes one morning to burn the whole thing down with thousands of casualties to boot. One of the most fundamental principles of human unity is that anything produced by human beings, structurally, societally, civilizationally, personally, structurally, anything, it takes so much more time, discipline, effort, thought, interest to make it than it takes to destroy it. Building things, constructing things, making things takes so much more time than destroying things. It takes more time, passion, thought, effort, right? It doesn't take very long to tear them down. And that's not just physical things like buildings. I mean, think about this. How long—if I told you right now, 
if you had to create a new, a brand new trusted friendship, and I said, how long do you think it'll take for you to start a brand new relationship, for that to become a trusted friendship, somebody that you would call when things go badly, right? I said, how long is that going to take? Right? You might say five months, two years. Shoot, that might take a decade, right? How long does it take you to destroy a relationship like that? Not long. Not long. It's great to talk about unity. It's great to want unity. It's great to see God's vision for unity. It's great to understand all these positive things. It's great to know that a lot of virtues that we can grow in in Christ can lead towards more unity. It's, it's great to know all these kinds of different things and how it works in disputed issues and how it should function in larger societal situations and all that kind of stuff. But listen, when it comes right down to it, bad people can't have unity. Weak, angry, self-serving, pride-filled, conceited, quarrelsome people can't have unity. Lots of people can be doing everything they can, but if a very large swath of human beings do not kill the vices of division in themselves, unity of any kind cannot be created, cannot be produced, cannot be sustained, cannot be enjoyed. And I can't kill the vices of division in you. And you can't kill them in me. Right? The, the, the fighting, the killing in Christian faith isn't killing each other. And this isn't something we made up recently. In the Bible, the only phraseology used of putting something to death is sin inside of us. That with absolute militaristic brutality, we are to kill with extreme prejudice— Sin. And the part of us in rebellion to God, the Bible calls the flesh. That's the only call to violence in the whole Bible. Right? That we're supposed to live out in the lordship of Christ. And we're supposed to love our enemies, the people we want to kill, as ourselves. And so what that means is that if we as a people, as we as the church want to have unity, and in the world we want to be peacemakers, the very first step is to recognize that under the Lordship of Jesus, we have to kill the vices of division in ourselves. Now, um, I'm gonna— I want to talk about this in a couple of different ways, and I'm gonna go kind of fast. Um, I'm, I'm introducing you to a field of Christian knowledge and discipleship. I'm not gonna be able to cover it very much, okay? This is like— Okay, you can do a lot more. Okay, so the first thing to recognize is that God is very clear about vices— the vices of division. The, the Bible says an awful lot about what creates division, what the vices of division are, how they function, what they mean, why we do them. It's not like God doesn't talk about these. It's, it's not like we'd be like, you know, I wonder if there's anything in the Bible about how we create division as opposed to unity. There's tons of stuff in the Bible, right? Here's like four quick ways that you can go through the process of um, finding this, right? One is to recognize that in the scriptures, unity is fused together with maturity. Where you find unity, you will always find maturity. Where you find immaturity, you will always find division, right? So wherever the Bible talks about maturity, it's implicitly also talking about what it produces with maturity, which is unity. And the Bible talks about maturity where? Everywhere, right? Second is you can reverse the virtues of unity. There's a bunch of places where the apostles say, hey, be unified. And if you just read the verses around it, it's full of the verses. It's full of the virtues that are supposed to fill out unity. So you just, you find those and you go, well, what's the reverse of these? What would it be like if I didn't do this, right? 
Very simple, right? Third is you can actually observe the explicit places where the vices of division are talked about. There are many, which I will go over in a minute. And also the last is you can— there are biblical occasions of division in which division is handled well or handled poorly, right? Paul and Peter have a big fight in Galatia about what the gospel is and whether Jews and Gentiles should associate with each other. And they handle it like kind of angrily, but well. In Acts 15, there's this huge division, and the church comes together and produces unity, right? But when Joab and Abner are supposed to get together so that Israelites stop killing each other and can have one people, Joab stabs Abner in the gut and cuts out his intestines. That's considered a bad response to issues of division, right? And so on. So for example, um, Ephesians 4, 12, 13 says this, So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and unity in the knowledge of God, the Son of God, and, second thing, become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. You see how those are fused together? The goal of all that's happened through all of Ephesians up until this place, here's the goal. The goal is that we would reach full unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God, and that we would be mature in all the fullness of Christ. That those two things would happen. If they happen, they will happen together, right? The same thing is true of division versus sin, right? Proverbs 17, 9 says this, He who loves a quarrel loves sin. Where the vices of division exist in us, the immaturity of loving sin exists in us. Right? Those two go together, and if you know that, then you can say, look, if I want to pursue God's vision for unity, I can just pursue Christian discipleship. I can just pursue maturity, and I can make war against sinful immaturity, right? The second is, um, if you reverse the virtues of unity. So Ephesians 4 says this, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love, make every effort effort to keep the bond of peace, to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, right? So you just take those, and you switch them around. The opposite of humility is pride. The opposite of gentleness is callousness, roughness, or brutality, right? The opposite of patience is irritability and impatience and so on, right? And we should be able to recognize those and say, oh, these are the things that we're supposed to avoid. These are the things we're supposed to fight, right? You can also just look at the verses that explicitly say what happens when we're engaging in division, the actual vices themselves. So in Galatians 5, it says this, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. What's the application of having killed the flesh and walking in life of the Spirit? He says, the first thing he says is, let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. You see, three direct vices that flow directly out of the work of the flesh. See, a few verses earlier, he talks about the works of the flesh in terms of personal direct sinfulness. And then he talks about the fruit of the Spirit in terms of godliness. And then he says this, and then he says, now, to attach maturity to unity right away, right? In, in ungodliness, what are things that are going to flow out of us if we're not in step with the Spirit? What's going to flow out of us if we're not in step with the Spirit is we're going to be conceited in ourselves. We're going to think we're better so we can, we can criticize anybody we want. We're going to provoke other people. We're going to say stuff that if they said to us, we'd get angry. But if we say to them and they get angry, we just, look, I'm just saying. I'm just telling the truth here. I'm just, Right? I'm just laying it out there. I'm just speaking truth to power. I'm just whatever. Like, add in your, like, evasive euphemism, right? And then third, envying each other. That a lot of division comes not just from pride, I'm better than you, but envying, you shouldn't think you're better than me or have better things than me. That cross-hatred of, of pride of privilege and envying is the heart of the dynamic that destroys the capacity for unity and people working with each other, Right? 
And then fourth is biblical occasions of division, right? I already went over these, Acts 15 and Galatians 2. But then also there's negative examples. Um, for example, there's a lot in the scriptures about what kind of teachers you shouldn't listen to, right? And oftentimes in churches like this, we'll get really upset about that in terms of like what certain pastors preach or whether or not I'm being sufficiently um, orthodox or whatever. But like, these are the same human dynamics that matter about who, what influencers you listen to. Like, I look at some of the people, the people in all, all over the, the, like, the page. Like, not people of particular ideology. I just look at all these different influencers, and they all utterly embody what the apostles say we should absolutely regret and reject. I mean, just about all of them. You just look at all these influencers everywhere, in both parties, all kinds of different situations, people who, sit, who have their own YouTube channel and their own news channel. You look at these folks, and they behave identically in relationship to all of the behaviors the apostle says. Look, if somebody tries to influence you, and they behave like this, do not listen to them. Don't follow them. Don't say they have good points. Don't post them. Don't participate in it, and remove yourself from their influence. And those people, listen, those people say a lot of things that are in fact true. They do. On all sides of the aisle and in all kinds of different experiences, they say lots of things that are true. Yet the ministry, the service they offer is poison. Because it includes all the vices of division. So even if they say a lot of true things, but it's admixed with the, with the vices of division, they will produce destruction. Christians, stop giving your voice to these people. Stop retweeting these people. Stop reposting these people. Stop just listening to them and let them like fuel up your fleshly desire for somebody to tell you that you're right. When, you, when you, we listen to people that say, look, you're right, and you know you are right about the thing, you're like, I'm sure I'm right about this thing. That feeling, that gratificational feeling that you get when they tell you you're right, that's not good. It's not coming from the spirit. It's coming from the flesh. Your internal, deep, needful sense that you're right, you're okay, you're oriented well in the world, you understand what's going on, and you can control your surroundings. So you feel safe, and you're no longer afraid, and you can feel the requisite pride that makes you feel like you're justified. That's all fleshliness. And it's poisonous, and it destroys the capacity. Because listen, God wants us to find certain unities of cooperation with our worst enemies. Most of the people we'll cooperate with in the course of our lives, we will disagree with over very profound things. And more and more with the sorting of technology, allowing us to only listen to people that we already completely agree with, we become these little factionalistic groups that really want to kill each other because we disagree on things that would not have mattered to any of our forefathers. Right? Or, more importantly, don't matter at all, functionally to Jesus— relative to the unity he wants us to pursue, right? Now, let's go on to the second. So the second thing is, we have to kill these vices in ourselves, okay? Um, it's important to recognize that when, when God says that in Christ Jesus, just as um, we've been crucified in Christ, we have to crucify the sinful nature. Because Jesus, Jesus didn't deserve to die nailed to a cross. Our flesh does. And in Christ— our flesh can be killed, and our spirit can be raised with Christ, and we can have a new life and identity in Him. Our flesh, what was called the flesh, that is the part of us that doesn't want to submit to God, that is full of our own self-centeredness and conceit, the part of us that's broken and twisted by sin and the fall, that part is not going to heaven. Okay? If you bind yourself holistically to that part of yourself, you can't be saved. 
part of what happens in Christ saving us is he, he leads us in justification, in knowing him, in seeing him as Lord and King, to reject the flesh, to repent of it, and to put it to death. Because it's going to die. But you don't have to die with it, right? We have to crucify the flesh with its passions and its desires. Now, here's the thing that's really important to recognize. Acknowledging the vices of division is not the same thing as identifying them. Acknowledging the vices of division is not the same thing as, as, um, as recognizing them. Here's what, here's what I mean by that. If I say to you, okay, listen, do you agree that these are vi- human vices that, that people do and that people should not do, right? Quarrelsomeness, that is provoking others to controversy and stirring up wrongs. People do that? Yes? People shouldn't do that. Right. Okay, good. Mocking, that is humiliating the meaning of something that is good, right? By ridiculing it. Mockery. People do that? Yes, people do that. Should people not do that? People should not do that, right? Gossip, speaking without discretion, saying what ought not to be said, either about people or just generally that stirs up controversy or makes things difficult. Do people gossip? Yes, they do. Should people gossip? No, they should not, right? Pride, brutality, rivalry, conceit. Do people do those things? Yes, they do. Ought people to do those things? No, they shouldn't. Now, do you do those things? Right? The answer is yes. A lot more than you think. A lot more than you think. We create evasive euphemisms to shield ourselves from the recognition that we do these things constantly. So, for example, we call quarrelsomeness assertiveness and truth-telling. We call mocking the good satire or sarcasm. We call gossip sharing awareness. We call pride confidence. We call brutality being strong and not being the victim. We call rivalry and partisanship being woke or being educated. I cannot tell you how many people spout their partisan rivalry nonsense with, under the idea that, like, I'm just more educated than you. That's why I can say whatever I want, because I know more. And just think about the concept of being woke, right? I'm more awake than everybody else. I've left Plato's cave. I see the truth as it is, which is baloney. It's just nonsense. We live in a world that is so hopelessly complicated, where almost every field has within it the engagement of thousands, if not millions, of human minds over generations, adding knowledge to that field. The idea that you can, like, read a news article or even do a minor or a major in undergrad in something and think that you understand it is nonsense, right? You see this with, like— you know how, like, uh, a lot of conservative people just think cities are terrible, right? Like, I mean, cities are just, like, they're always, like, like I, I, I know there's a long line of people, right? They're like, cities are terrible. And then um, a lot of woke people, like, like woke lefty people, they, they're like, I hate capitalism. Capitalism is so bad. People, people say all kinds of stuff about COVID with capitalism, like capitalism problem. Okay, the reason, the reason you can read is because of capitalism, right? I mean, like, the, the, reason, the reason that we could create a virus is because we could create a virus, and we could create a vaccine for a virus is because—sorry. <laughs> is because of technology which is developed across many people over time by 
processing education, through all these things that were developed after the 1600s when Denmark and part of England woke up to some things about free exchange. You're like, well, but there was a lot of oppression. There has been oppression from time immemorial among all people. Yes, technology made some things worse. Like, yes, Hitler killed Jews faster than the Mongols could slaughter people, women, and children, and burn down villages. It was more effective. Yes, when the British created better sailing vessels, they could move slaves all over the world faster than slaves could be marched to their death in other places. This is all true. Technology did make some oppression worse. But almost everything you enjoy, almost everything everyone enjoys, even the poorest in the world, everywhere in the world, was produced by the sharing and cooperation and competition of people in a market of free exchange that grew globally and everybody who has access to it seems to want it. And we think we just understand, well, cities are just terrible. Well, cities are complicated, right? People need opportunity, and cities are amalgamations of opportunity, right? And people are like, well, they're just, they're liberal and blah, blah. Well, yeah, because it's where a lot of new ideas and innovation come from. It's where artists concentrate, and, and like people who want to start things like entrepreneurs, they all come to these places, and yeah, they tend to be more liberal. That's true. doesn't mean they're terrible. There's terrible things about cities, and there's incredible things about cities. It's more complicated than that. Almost everything is more complicated than that. And it's so easy for us to be just, like so conceited in our knowledge. We're like, well, I'm so educated, and I'm so woke. No, you're not. Just listen to some woke person talk, and then listen to the same talk done by a think tank of people who are scholars in that field and are trying to actually develop helpful policies. They don't sound like people— like, you listen to people talking seriously about poverty policies, and you listen to people on both sides of the political aisle spout off their nonsense about what will help the poor, and there's no—there's no relationship between the two. And yet, you and I get sucked into it. Because it feels so good to think you're a good person because you approve of the right things, and it is the cheapest way. You remember Titus 3? The Apostle Paul did not say, approve of the good. He didn't say that. He didn't say, approve of what you think right now is the good in a shallow way. He said, commit yourself to doing the good. To doing the good. Doing the good is not correcting people online. It is actually helping someone who's struggling. It is sacrificing your personal opportunities. It is opening your home and hospitality. It is giving of your financial means. It is using your talents to help somebody who needs access to those talents to help them. It is concrete actions that are actually loving and helpful, usually cooperating with others in unity, and it usually functions best when you cooperate with other people you disagree with about other things. We come up with these evasive euphemisms for the vices of division. And the problem that it creates, it creates three very, very major problems. One is, is that it makes it so that we can see the vices in other people. We call them what they are. We use the vice names for other people. And then when it comes to us and people we ally ourselves with, we use the euphemisms. So that person's quarrelsome, but I'm standing up for us. That person's full of conceit, but I'm woke. That—do you see what happens? And so you can hate your enemy more, and you can affirm yourself more, and you can tell everybody's on your team, we're all right. Right? The second thing is, is that you will follow influencers you should reject. Right? You'll look at your team or whoever you think your team is, or you'll listen to people who talk, and they sound like they're defending you. 
or they sound like they're helping you with your confusion, and it seems like you should get on their team because the bad guys are out there and they're coming for you, and so you better get on this person's team, right? And so you'll, we'll listen to and we'll follow and we'll give our allegiance to people who we should not, right? And then the third thing is, I've already talked about this a good bit, is we will have ignorant, all-or-nothing views about complex human relationships and institutions. So we'll think government is always bad or always good. We'll think the university is just a bunch of liberals or it's a place where nothing but objective science is done. Or we'll think, you know, we'll just think nonsense like that. Like the food industry is all about making us all fat and unhealthy. Or um, the food industry is like the most efficient way to get calories to people. Or like, we'll, we, just, we just have this, or like that person, or you'll, you'll think that person is all bad or all good. Like, I can't tell you how many people I've heard say that Donald Trump is like nothing but an evil person. And then like they turn around and they think Nancy Pelosi is like an angel. They're both complicated people. They both think that they're good people. They're both doing based on what they think makes them a good person but also acting very self-interestedly, plus trying to grasp power, being afraid of their enemies, trying to, like, make happy the people that they support, and all of that in a big, complicated mess. Just like everyone else. And we as Christians need to not be taken in by these things. The most important thing for us to do is to kill the vices of division in us. In us, and we live in a time where in this particular area, the vices of division are being inflamed exponentially in our culture right now. And if you don't actively turn against it and say, no, it will devour you, right? Just like we're in an incredibly sexualized culture right now. We have to be like, "Uh uh-uh! And we have to very specifically stand against that and understand the biblical sexuality. This is very similar. We live in an incredibly divisive, flesh-oriented culture in this area. And if we don't—if we're not extremely adamant in our minds, and our actions, and our beliefs, and if we don't study what the Lord says about this stuff, and seek to add it to our character, and work very hard with each other to encourage, and even rebuke when necessary, towards those ends, we will be destroyed. And we will not have the vision of the unity of God in the church, and we will not be peacemakers in the world. It broke my heart. It broke my heart. Listen— it broke my heart to see the Christian flag in the Capitol building. It broke my heart. And I am as sympathetic as I can be to people of all kinds of different persuasions politically. Um, but that broke my heart. You know? Um, so, okay, let me say the last thing. And we're a little bit— uh, we don't have a lot of time for this, but I feel like if I leave this out, I've left out the gospel, and I don't think you should do that, right, when you're preaching. So the, the third is, is that the, the vices of division will only die in the death of Christ. The vices of division in us will only die in the death of Christ, right? The gospel has to change you in the place where you live and die. Now, that may sound like, um, you know, you've probably heard me say this. Listen, you guys, if we're going to really be like Jesus, the gospel just isn't deep enough in us yet. And you might be like, that's a nice little religious phrase. The gospel isn't deep enough. And every time Christianity doesn't work, the preacher just says, the gospel isn't deep enough, and that works, right? Okay, when I say that relative to this, I do not mean that as a generic religious platitude. I mean it in a psychologically literal way. Okay, I mean in a psycho—here's what I mean by that. Um, in Luke 9, it says this, and he said that's Jesus. 
The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders of the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day rise to life. And then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Right? And he says this, For, he's explaining now what it means, why does someone have to take up their cross daily and follow him? For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. For what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and let lose or forfeit his very self. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Now, why does he say that? Why does he say you have to take up your cross and die when salvation is supposed to be just believing in Jesus and repenting of your sins? Why is that necessary? He's literally saying, if you don't do this, you will lose your life. That is, your present life in this world will be lost to what it meant to be, and your soul in your eternal self will be lost. Your very self will be lost. It's not the Greek word for soul. It's the Greek word suxe, which means self, soul, life. It's lost, right? He's talking about salvation and lostness, and he's not talking about repenting and believing in Jesus merely, but that you have to take up your cross every day and follow him. What does he mean by that? Right? You see, Jesus has to be believed in daily in the part of you that lives and dies. You understand? You don't understand, do you? Right? That's fine, right? Okay, think, think about it in psychological terms for a minute, right? There's a lot of psychologists now that talk about like core needs and your core needs and these are my core needs and like people don't do things except for in relation to their core needs. That's all true, okay? People have said before that the Bible isn't a scientific textbook, which is true in the sense that it doesn't use scientific language, but it deals with in the language of its time almost everything that is interesting scientifically. So, for example, there's all kinds of psychological content in the Bible. It just doesn't use scientific psychological words. So, for example, what is at the very core of you? What motivates everything you do, right? A very simple set of core human existent needs. Like, you're an existing being, right? And so one of them is like, who do I belong to? Who is with me? Who, who's mine and who, who's am I, right? Psychologists call that attachment. How you, like, relate to people and who you're known by, who you're connected to, especially those of you parents who are, who, who've done adoptions, Right? Like, it's, like the, the biggest heart cry is like, how do I get this kid that literally didn't come out of me, wasn't born into my arms to attach with me so that they know that they're loved and they belong here and they're part of our family and they have a place in this world and they are tethered. How do I do that? It's so hard, right? It's because it's such a core human need. They know that if it doesn't happen, it's really going to hurt that child. And that's true for all of us. It's real, right? And then orientation and control— or, this isn't orientation like sexual orientation. It's orientation like a compass. Like, okay, that's north. I know where I am. And then control, like, can I do what I need to do, right? And then uh, pleasure and pain, good and evil. That is, what do I want to do? What's right and good to do? And can I do it? And can I avoid the bad stuff, right? Can I get through my life? And then the fourth thing is self-worth and self-development. Like, am I worthwhile? Do I have a right to exist? And am I becoming something worthwhile, right? Now listen, there's no verse in the Bible that says, you know what the core human needs are? It's these four. But everything in the scriptures— recognizes it. God understands this. He's always understood human psychology. And so, one of the reasons Jesus says you have to believe in the place where you live and die is because those things are the place where you live and die. That's your core. That's where you literally live and die. It's where you think you're dying or you think you're living. Have you talked to somebody who's like in a relationship or in a marriage that's not going well? It's like, I feel like I'm dying in this relationship. I feel like I'm dying in this job. 
Or this thing happened, and it, it, like it felt like my heart came to, came to life again. Like my kid like, came back and stopped falling off the rails, and like they're going in a good direction. It was like my heart came alive again, right? Why? Because there's a place in you is where you live and die. And if that place is not occupied by Jesus the Christ as Lord, it is occupied by something else. It will always be occupied by something. We always will turn to something to give us life and to prevent our death. And so if your faith doesn't go deep enough to, to the living and dying space, if you don't wake up in the morning and die to everything but Jesus the Lord Christ to tell you who and where you are and whose you are, and to him to tell you where you are in the world and what it is you have to do, and to recognize what is good and what is bad and what will bring pleasure to your heart, not just your, your senses, but to your, the whole of yourself, right? What psychologists call flow. When like what you believe is good and you want to pursue, you are pursuing and you're doing. What we also call integrity, or what the Bible calls godliness. Godliness is knowing what is good, right, true, and beautiful in the eyes of God and doing it in the mind of Christ and in the will of God. And having our hearts, if Christ is Lord in our hearts, then that's coming from the living and dying place enough, and it fulfills us, and we have flow. We have what the Bible, the Bible doesn't call it flow. It calls it the peace of God. But it's the same thing. It's just the right kind. Because you see, every single one of these four, four core needs, there's also in Scripture, so Scripture doesn't say it's going to work out fine as long as you handle these needs. No. What Scripture says is the flesh battles to answer these questions with idolatry, and Jesus calls to answer these questions with salvation in the Spirit. And you must decide whether each day you will take up your cross and follow him or whether you won't. Right? The gospel specifically speaks to these, these core things in us. And so it's important to recognize, friends, and this is, this is so critical. If we do not believe in Jesus as Lord, King, and Savior, in the very core of our being, if it's just an intellectual idea, if we believe it's specific just to the fact that we'll have eternal life, if, it's, if there are religious things that we do, if we just grew up in Christian faith and we just kind of sort of take it for granted, but as we grow up and like we're teenagers or we're like young people, we're really reacting towards these core needs without putting Jesus into them, right? Which is what most young Christian people do, right? And what will happen is something will supplant Jesus to answer these things, except the, the voice that we'll be answering is not the calling forth of the Spirit, the good things of Christ. Instead, what happens is our flesh will call out for salvation, and it will be answered by idols. And so even though we come to church, we will worship a political ideology. We'll worship, like, the kind of consumption we want to do. We'll worship the moral thing we're part of. We'll think that our profession is better than every other profession. Like there's some way in which idols will come in and answer the call of the flesh and answer our questions in this core. And we'll have Christianity in like our cognitive mind, and we'll do all these behaviors, and we'll do this stuff for a while where we're Christians. But the flesh won't be put to death because we're using the flesh to get ourselves to where we really want to go. And what Jesus says in Luke 9, he says, listen, If you're not willing every day to wake up and walk to your own execution in me, knowing that on the other side of that is the resurrection, and if that doesn't make it into the very core of whose you are and where you are and what your life is for and 
what, how to do the good and what really it means to be yourself in integrity and that this is who you are and this is what you're meant to become. If it doesn't get there, just quit. Like, if you don't, if you don't believe on that level, you don't believe. Like, you don't, you don't belong to him. It's just a game. Jesus has come to answer the deepest human needs. And he must answer the deepest human needs. And to the extent to which he does, a lot of these idolatrous things that come in and seek to access your flesh will be disempowered, and you can push them away. And you can use them in the secondary way you should to figure out who to vote for and figure out what career to do and figure out what school to go to and figure out what sport team to like. Secondarily, but then they're not important to you and they wash off your back because Jesus is at your core. Or you use Jesus as a secondary religious thing and the flesh is at your core seeking the idols it requires to give you the salvation you really want. As we get ready to, um, to take communion together, I hope that you'll look at it that way. I hope that you'll recognize that when we take this, it says in Scripture, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That it is an action for the remission of sins, but it is a recognition that to follow him is to follow him. It is to follow him in the way of his cross, in the words of Philippians, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. And that part of that is that we, listen, we are going to put to death the vices of division. Father, as we, um, as we begin and prepare ourselves to take the Lord's Supper and to sing and worship, um, I pray that you would work in us and in our hearts to see the gravity and the depth at which you want to work in us. I pray that right now, some of us, probably all of us on some level, um, need to muck out the stall of where we are in our core and invite you in entirely without restraint. I pray that in the moment of communion, though that's not what communion is, but that in this moment we would use it as a time to renew a faith in you that is not just a Romans 10.9, repent and believe faith, but that is in addition to that the whole picture of a Luke 9 faith where we are accepting in it that we are taking up our cross and following you because you in leading us to death, are leading us to life. Just as you died and rose. I pray in Jesus' name. Um, if you don't have a... Uh